So I say, God bless America. I stand here and I choke up as we sing the national anthem. I continue to choke up as we pledge allegiance to the flag. Maybe not everything that's coming out of Congress. I pledge allegiance to the flag and to the republic, not the democracy. We're not a democracy for which it stands. It stands, it's a republic, one nation under God. They ever take that phrase out, guess what I will no longer be able to do? Pledge allegiance. Besides, I know full well where my citizenship is. It's in heaven. And I am a citizen of that far land. And one of these days, God's going to call his ambassadors home. And what a day that will be. I still love this nation, and I will continue to love this nation, defend this nation, fight for this nation if called upon to do so. Glad that I'm a citizen of this country, but I will not bow, bend, to the things that are starting to take place. As a matter of fact, I'm going to remind you of two scriptures this morning as we get into the message. Psalm 33. Psalm 33, verse 12. Been here almost 23 years, and I think I have reminded you of this verse every year about this time. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Proverbs 14. Righteousness Proverbs 14, verse 34, Tim. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. I pray for our leaders. I pray for those in authority over us, just as God's Word tells us to do. And I pray that they will come to understand exactly what it means Righteousness is what exalts a nation. The problem is people no longer understand or know what righteousness is. It's rightness before God. And the only way that you can know righteousness and what is right before God is to honor and know His Word. And this seems to be the last thing people turn to. But not us. We make sure that we turn to the Word of God because this is where our instruction comes from, right? This is where we know how to behave. We know how to live. Matter of fact, I think that's the reason why government is so afraid of the people of God and His Word. 
See, the people of God, we don't need a government telling us what to do because we already know what is right and what is wrong. We have the Word of God. But when you desire to be the God of a people, then you've got to, or desire to be that substitute, you have to slowly and methodically move the true God out and substitute it with something else. Well, my prayer is that's not going to be allowed to happen. That we as free Americans that stand on God's word are going to continue to, to proclaim it. As a matter of fact, last week I mentioned to you that we were going to continue with our study in 1 Timothy and then we're going to move into 2 Timothy at some point. I forgot that this Sunday is Independence Day. And so I always try to come up with a message that's patriotic and, and that talks about our founding fathers and their faith and uh, the fact that, that the Supreme Court years ago has declared that this nation is a Christian nation and give all the proof based on all the quotes from our founding fathers and, and all the different things that this nation has stood for and, and give you examples of all the scripture that are plastered all over the halls of Congress and the Supreme Court and all across this land. And so we like to remind ourselves of that every year, and I've been doing that, but then I forgot that today was July the 4th. And so I went, oh, man, I told them we were going to look at 1 Timothy, and, and I'm really wanting to look at 1 Timothy. And then I think, I really believe the Holy Spirit said, what better way of celebrating your freedoms, your liberties, your ability to stand up and preach God's Word than just stand up and preach God's Word? See, it doesn't really matter what I preach on Independence Day. The fact that I can stand here and preach from this is something worth celebrating. Right? So turn with me to 1 Timothy 1. Because that's what we're going to continue with today. As we celebrate our independence, our liberty, our freedoms, we're going to celebrate by looking at God's Word and teaching truth from God's Word. Because I think that's what is so very important. The last week as we started, we learned that from 1 Timothy, that God is our Savior, that He is, the Lord Jesus is our hope. Matter of fact, look at Titus real quick. Titus 2.13 combines both of those. Titus 2.13 says, Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. The Lord is our hope. He is our salvation. He is our Savior. We also learned last week that He is our ransom. Folks, I can't begin to explain to you how absolute, absolutely imperative it is that we understand that. The ransom was paid by Christ. The debt owed was paid by the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. He paid the debt we owed. A ransom, as we learned last week, 
is a demand paid for the release of someone held captive. And we were held captive by sin. And Christ Jesus paid that debt that we owed. So he is our Savior. He's our hope. He's our ransom. And here, maybe next week, we're going to get into the fact in a little more detail that he is the one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. But this morning, look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting with verse 11. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1:11 According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust now he's going to commit that glorious gospel and we know from 1 Corinthians 15 that the the gospel the good news is that Christ died for our sins was buried and rose again we know from our apostle we know from the writings of Paul the Pauline epistles he talks about that gospel of the grace of God that was given to him. From the Pauline epistles, we understand that mystery, that which was hid in God, not revealed until it was revealed to the Apostle Paul concerning the church, the body of Christ, not the kingdom church, but the body of Christ that's made up of believing Jew, made up of believing Gentile, those people who have been made new creations, it's the Apostle Paul that we learn all of those glorious truths from. And he commits this glorious truth to Timothy. Timothy, guard this truth. Guard this precious deposit, is what he calls it. The glorious gospel. That good news that Christ died for your sins was buried, and rose again. And what you must do in order to be saved is believe it. And that's at, the, that's at the heart of that gospel, is there's nothing you can do to earn it, there's nothing you can do to work for it, there's nothing you can do to, to buy it. It's already been purchased by His precious blood. I'd say that's good news. And the truth that we preach and proclaim is that if you've never been saved, if you've never trusted Christ, then what you need to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The work was accomplished by Christ. By faith we trust His work, realizing there's nothing we can do to make God love us any more than He already does in Christ. something worth committing your life to preach, to defend. Verse 12. The next few verses, and I think how we interpret these next few verses is one of the reasons that I believe St. Louis Bible Fellowship is such a unique church, and I'll tell you frankly, there's not another church anywhere that I would rather attend, especially in the city of St. Louis or in the state of Missouri or in the SEC. College football is getting closer and closer. Than St. Louis Bible Fellowship. 
that I would rather attend. And it's because of our unique doctrinal statement that sets us apart because we recognize certain truths, one of them being the apostleship of Paul and the mystery that was given to him and how that fits what I'm about to read. I'm glad to be part of a group of believers who adhere to what I am about to share. I couldn't be happy attending anywhere else. I would be so dissatisfied. Well, I would be jumping up and down. I would be, I'd be having fits trying to listen to another pastor. And what I'm about to teach you, I think, clarifies, clears up, explains so much of what some people call contradictions in the Scripture. Because they're not, there are no contradictions. There's just an error in how they approach the Scriptures by not rightly dividing the truth of God's, of God's Word. Contradictions disappear. Contradictions evaporate when you understand and make a distinction between God's program and purpose for the nation of Israel and the blessings and calling of Israel. Make a distinction between that and that special revelation when he blinded Israel, set them aside, he raised up the chief of sinners, and he gives him a special revelation concerning this present dispensation, this present church age, where when a person believes, they don't enter into the covenant relationship that God had with Israel. They enter into that blessed body where God places you where he wants you, made up of Jew and Gentile. You become the members of the body of Christ. So verse 12, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful. doesn't say worthy. Isn't that interesting? Because you know he realized he's not. But he counted me faithful. Putting me into the ministry. Let me tell you something. God's called each and every one of us to the ministry. Each and every one of us are to be ministers of the word of reconciliation. Every one of us, have, we are to be ambassadors for Christ without exception. God has put you in the ministry. Just as he put Paul, he gave Paul a special revelation. He made Paul the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul talks about the fact that he magnifies his office, had nothing to do with ego, has everything to do with an understanding of the enormous burden that God had placed on Paul, that he was a special uh, vessel, according to Acts chapter 9. But God has put all of us in the ministry to be ambassadors. And that's why I mention so often that when we leave this building and we go through those doors and the sign above the door that says you're now entering the mission field, that's so true. Maybe we ought to put it over this door because I know a lot of you sneak out this door. So maybe we ought to put it on that door. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'd, I've seen you sneak out this door. This door tells you what's happening. You're now entering the mission field because we've all called, been called to be ministers 
have the word of reconciliation. And as Paul was writing this, as the Holy Spirit was moving on him, reminding him, look at verse 13. Who was before a blasphemer. A blasphemer. You know what under the kingdom program it says about being a blasphemer? To blaspheme the Holy Spirit? There's no forgiveness. There's no forgiveness. So how in the world does Paul find forgiveness? By grace. And that, that is a huge distinction as we get into it over the next few weeks, explaining that, talking about that. Paul says, I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Let's look at some of the things the Apostle Paul was doing. Look at Acts. Let's go to Acts chapter 7. This is critical. This is so critical that you understand what the salvation of this this man means. It'd help if I'd get to Acts chapter 7. You think as old as this Bible is? You would know by now just to jump over there. Acts chapter 7. Start with verse 55 of Acts chapter 7, verse 55. Paul says he was a blasphemer, he was injurious. He was also a Pharisee of the Pharisee. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And everything he was doing against God's children, the people of the way, he was doing it thinking he was doing God a favor. He was extremely religious. In his mind, keeping the law, he was perfect. He wasn't going to put up with those fanatics who were believing that this Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. Why, he'll put a stop to that. Look at Acts chapter 7, what he's doing. But he, talking about Stephen, this is Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost. Now, what it says earlier about Stephen was to look upon him was to look at the face of an angel. I mean, God was empowering him. There was a glow. There was a power to him. It could not be mistaken. And what, when Stephen stood up, he laid it on these Pharisees, Sadducees, these elders, these religious leaders. He laid it on them. He called them stiff-necked, hard-hearted. He, he accused them of killing Christ. Because they had. And it was something they needed to repent of. But when it says here, it keeps reiterating that he was full of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. You, 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 couldn't, you couldn't mistake it. 
But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. That's significant, folks, because we find earlier Christ had ascended into heaven, and what did he do? He sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the Father, indicating rest as the kingdom was being offered to the nation of Israel. That's why Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2, he talks about how my Lord said to my Lord, sit here and I'll make your enemies your footstool. All important in understanding what was going on in heaven as the kingdom was being offered to Israel. They were being, what was being preached in them was the gospel of the kingdom, uh, the, the baptism of repentance and, and all that they were supposed to do. And he sees Jesus standing on the right hand of God. That's a change. And his standing there had nothing to do with welcoming the first martyr. I don't know whoever came up with that, but they're wrong. Every scripture in the Bible pertaining to God's standing is always in judgment. Always in judgment. Sit here until I make your enemies your footstool? Well, all of a sudden, he's not sitting there anymore. He's standing. Judgment is coming. And even Peter says what was going on in Acts chapter 2. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. You go to the prophet Joel in chapter 2 and chapter 3, it's all about the coming tribulation. It's all about the wrath of God coming upon a disbelieving world in the end times. Jesus is standing because those things that are about, that wrath that's about to fall, the wrath of God that's next on the prophetic timetable, that's supposed to come down is suspended for a while, temporarily. And we're going to see what falls on the chief of sinners rather than God's wrath, rather than God's judgment, rather than the prophesied tribulation which is to be like no other time of persecution ever or ever shall be again. Because that's what was prophesied. That's what they knew from Scripture was to happen next. What was not prophesied, what was a mystery, what was hidden, was the glorious truth concerning God's amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Because it's going to fall squarely on the very one. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Look at verse 57. Then they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears. And you stop your ears when you don't want to hear something, right? They stopped their ears, and they ran upon him with one accord. They were in agreement. Stop this man from preaching and saying these things. We don't want to hear it. They were probably the same ones that had early on had said, Crucify him! Crucify him! And they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. 
Now, what we need to understand about the law at this time is the one that was giving you the authority to do the stoning that was authorizing you to do this capital, this act of capital punishment, you would lay your cloak, your coat, at his feet, because you didn't want your coat on, because you could get a good wind-up. That's what they intended to do. But they would lay their cloaks at the foot of the one that was authorizing this dastardly deed. Whose feet did they lay this cloak, their cloaks? Saul. That's the Hebrew name for Paul. He was authorizing. He was giving them permission to do this. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and he cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he died. He died. Well, what about this Saul of Tarsus? Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Acts 8, verse 1. And Saul... And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Except the apostles. Why hadn't the apostles gone out? They never did leave Jerusalem. There's a reason for that, and we're going to be getting into that at some point. But the apostles stayed there. Now, first of all, Christ told them to stay here until you be endued with power from on high. They hadn't been endued from, with power on high to, to go through the tribulation that was about to come. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church of the assembly, the kingdom church, the, the assembly, entering into every house and hauling men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. You don't know what they went preaching. Drop down to verse 12. When they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, in the name of the Christ Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. What happens next? Look at chapter 9 of Acts, verse 1. So here's this Saul. All this persecution is going on. Verse, verse 1 of chapter 9. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went into the high priest. He was in favor with the high priest. They were buddies. He was doing their work. And he desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if they found any of this way, those that were believing that Christ was the Jewish Messiah, that he had actually, that God had come in the flesh. You find any that believe that, why, haul them in. 
whether they were men or women, that he might bring them bound into Jerusalem. And he journeyed, he came near Damascus. Look what happens. And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. So back over in 1 Timothy, when we read about the fact that he was a blasphemer, he was a persecutor, and how? He was injurious, but he obtained mercy. Verse 14 of 1 Timothy 1. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant. The word there is the same as, as it is in Romans 5.20 when it talks about where sin abound. What much more abounds? Grace. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. I'd say sin abounded here with this man. He thought he was doing religious works. He thought he was doing good stuff. But what he was doing was evil. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came unto the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, I am foremost, I was the worst. The word is protos. It can mean he was the foremost sinner, but the word also means place in order. If I said, I am number one, well, that means I'm not number two or number ten or number hundred. It means I'm, I'm number one. But Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. I'm the foremost. You, all you got to do is go back and check out what the Scripture just told us he was doing. As a matter of fact, when Paul meets the Lord... He is, let's just go read it. Look at Acts, back to Acts 9. He came near to Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? By the way, Christ in Matthew 25 says, If you do it in the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Well, it works both ways. If you do good things or you do bad things, God was holding Saul guilty. Why do you persecute me? By persecuting those believers. The Lord was identifying and saying, you are persecuting me. Verse 5, Paul says, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks or against the goads. Verse 6, and he trembling and astonished, astonished, he thought he was doing right. 
He thought he was doing God a favor. He thought he was pleasing God. He thought he was doing everything that God would expect him to do. He was so religious. He tells us in Philippians, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. As of keeping the law, I was perfect. The Lord says, you're persecuting me. God's word says he was astonished. We find later in some of Paul's writings, you know what really astonishes him? The riches of God's grace. Maybe you can relate to that when you think back on your life, your sin. It's, he was astonished. You know what? I'm astonished too when I think about me and how marvelous God's grace is. And he said, Lord, what would you have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and thou shalt be told thee what thou must do. Now, we know from later on in Acts 9, God goes to Ananias and he says, Ananias, there's a guy that I want you to go to. His name is Saul. Whoa, no. Ananias says, Lord, I've heard of him. Do you realize? Well, of course you do. You're God. What, what he's been doing? And the Lord says, go to him, Ananias, because he is a chosen vessel to go to Gentiles, to kings, and to Israel. He had a special commission. And we find out that Paul becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. Those who were lost, those who were separated from God, those who were separated from the covenant, separated from Israel. Ephesians 2 tells us that the Gentiles were without hope, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. That's a pretty dire circumstance. All based, the Gentiles' salvation, them seeing the light, all depended on what Israel did. God was to send Israel to the Gentiles. They were to be a light to the Gentiles. They were to be a priestly nation that represented God to man and man to God. What man did? It was the Gentiles. Ananias knew this guy was bad news. He understood and was fearful. But God basically said, don't be fearful. So, man, what a, what a salvation experience. What an amazing experience. On the road to Damascus, a f- far away from Jerusalem, far from Israel, far from the 12 apostles. Why, he was persecuting them. If he'd have found them, boy, that would have been a prize. That would have been a catch. He would have hauled them off. Here was this Saul, this leader of the of the uh, the persecution being saved by God's amazing grace now you know what's interesting is none of the other apostles were called in this fashion this was pretty traumatic weren't it wasn't it, it this was traumatic He's riding along and he's heading to Damascus and he's thinking about all these people he's going to haul down to back to Jerusalem and, and they're going to be punished. And man, I'm God, I am really special to you, aren't I? I? And he was doing that. All of a sudden, he comes face to face with the very one that he is denying. That is a dramatic 
salvation. That is a dramatic experience. And it was all by grace. God should have sent a a lightning bolt down to knock him off his horse. Or something should have interrupted him on his travels. But what interrupted him, what changed the direction, was coming face to face with the living Christ resurrected and by grace this man is saved. Look at Matthew 7. Um, Matthew 4. Matthew 4. Tells us how the other apostles, the 12, were chosen. How many tribes are there? Twelve. How many apostles are there? Twelve. Representing Israel. How many apostles does the church, the body of Christ, primary apostles of the church, the body of Christ have? One. Because we're one body. So, These men, and this is imperative that we understand, these men were already part of a covenant relationship with the living God. They already had a relationship with God based on God's covenant, God's promises with Israel. Yes, Christ is going to tell them, Israel, you need to be born again. Just as they were born coming out of Egypt, that they needed to have a change of life. They needed to be born again. They had been born at one time as a nation, and that's what Christ is talking about. What we have to be made, Gentiles and even Jews today, are new creations. There's a big difference between being made a new creation and being born again. What God was calling these here 12 to be was born again. We're made new creations. But look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, how they are selected. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net at the sea, for they were fishers. And he said unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. There's no blinding light. There was no, why are you persecuting me? It was a recognition, he's the Messiah. And he's going to prove that to them here pretty quick. All the 12 apostles were selected that way. And all 12 apostles had a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ on earth. Do you realize they never saw him in heaven? They saw him being taken up into heaven but a cloud got in their way. They never saw the glorified Savior. They saw him for 40 days on earth, but they never, once he ascended, they never saw him in the clouds. Paul never knew Christ on earth. He only knows him as the resurrected, glorified Savior. 
That's another distinction, and that takes a long time to explain. We're not going to get into that this morning. But what we need to understand is those 12 apostles were chosen differently. And that's what moves Paul to say this. Back to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 15, he says, he was the chief of sinners. Howbeit for this cause, because I'm the chief of sinners, I'm the foremost of sinners, I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering. Had God ever been long-suffering before this? Let me give you a hint. Yes. He had been long-suffering ever since he made skins to cover Adam and Eve. He talking about Israel, how he was, he was patient with them. God was so long-suffering. But Paul is saying how in me first, Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. What does that mean? What is a pattern? I mean, I, I don't have to explain to you what a pattern is, right? He says, my salvation, my experience, coming face to face with a loving God who by grace saved me, was a pattern to all those that should believe hereafter. See, I believe what this verse is teaching us is that Paul was the first member of the body of Christ. Paul was the first one saved under this program that he's going to be given the special revelation concerning the explanation. That's what he's trying to point out. How be it for this cause I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. What did Paul have to do? Believe that the one who had stopped him there on the road to Damascus was the Lord Jesus. And by grace, by God's mercy, he is saved. That's why in verse 17, Paul breaks into a thing of praise. Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. How can you not break into that type of adoration, that type of praise, that type of worship, when you come to realize that you were the chief of sinners. And because you were the chief of sinners, and God had a plan, He had a program, He had a purpose to save this chief of sinners, basically to say, if I can save this one, I can save you. And that's exactly what happened. And Paul can't help himself. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.
God wants us to break out in that same kind of praise. And you'll know what he's talking about here if by faith you've trusted Christ as your Savior. Realizing that you were a sinner. Maybe you didn't haul people off to jail. At least I hope not. But the ones you, if you have, the ones you hauled to jail probably deserve to be hauled to jail. But you still needed saving. Amen? By faith you trusted Christ. And when you did, you became part of that same glorified body that Paul is going to have that truth revealed to him that talks about the fact that we are the body of Christ and you are put there where God wants you. It's a part, it's distinct from Israel. The church is a totally different entity than what Israel is. We're not spiritual Israel. We are dis- distinct body we are a distinct group made up of believing jews made up of believing gentiles and god's invitation to you is to be part of that body let's pray father my heart's desire my prayer right now is that every person listening knows you a savior father that important issue has been settled By faith, they have realized that they were a sinner and that they needed to trust you as Savior. And I just pray, Father, right now, the Holy Spirit will move on their heart if they've never believed. And Father, for those who have been redeemed, Father, may they say so. May they tell a lost world the difference in their lives because of what you have done. Father, may we be bold in our witness. May we be true in our study of your word. Father, may we be Bereans. May we search the scriptures to see if these things be so. Father, my prayer is not that a single person here will believe what I said today because I said it. But Father, they'll search the scriptures themselves to see if these things be so. May they be Bereans, Father. Now, Father, we pray that you will dismiss us this morning to go out into a world that is so lost and be a witness of your amazing grace. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Let's stand.